Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land And Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household, because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. 
So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Well, do keep that uh, passage open in front of you. In fact, uh, turn back to the beginning of the passage and it would be very helpful to have that uh, in front of you as we look at it together. Let me pray again as we turn to look at this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity and I pray that as we reflect upon the words we've just had read to us, uh, that you would give us faith, help us to believe what we read and hear and help us to respond with trust and a lively faith to the glory of your name. Amen. Now, I wonder if you've uh, ever had the experience of being knocked out in the surf. Um, I guess maybe not, because we're about as far as from the sea here in Sheffield as you can possibly get in the UK. And when you do get to the sea in the UK, it's, all, you know, it's kind of muddy and cold and not particularly attractive and not much surf, in fact. Uh, but when we lived in Australia a few years back, uh, I was getting knocked over in the surf on, on a regular basis. It's one of the, the features of our time there. And uh, it's a slightly frightening and disorientating experience. It's very hard as you get knocked over to, to, to work out which way is up. And uh, there's a sort of overwhelming feeling of hopelessness. Uh, there's no solid ground. There's nothing to hold on to. You just have to sort of wait and hope that somehow it's going to work out. Uh, we've witnessed the uh, English cricket team go through a similar experience in Australia over the last few weeks. And, and life's sometimes like that and feels like that. Uh, not always, it's true. Uh, but then something happens to knock us over. Uh, there might be a disappointment, an unexpected sadness, uh, a tragedy of some sort. Uh, and that will give us that feeling of, of hopelessness, that there's, there's no solid ground. There's nothing to hold on to. Or to put it another way, we do live in an amazing world. Uh, we look around and there's some wonderful things uh, to be amazed at. But something seems wrong at, at the heart of things. Something seems fundamentally, fatally flawed with the world that we live in. It's almost as if it's under some kind of curse. A good thing, but some kind of curse that's holding it, holding it back. Now, we might hunt around for all sorts of explanations for that or say that's just the way it is. We have to live with it. Uh, but as we do that, we might neglect one of the oldest and most compelling explanations for why the world is that way. I want to claim this evening that it's in the Bible that we get the best explanation for the, for the way the world is. The best way to understand the world as we see and experience it. Uh, and it's spelled out in the first 11 chapters of the Bible book we've just opened together and read from this evening, the book of Genesis. It's a very simple explanation of why the world is as it is. And uh, we neglect it, I think, not because it's unreasonable, but because we don't like it. It goes like this. It's very simple. The world is like it is because we, humanity, have turned away from the one who made it cutting us off from the source of life and blessing. Cut off from him, everything is flawed. Nothing makes sense anymore. 
And the early chapters of the book of Genesis are, are really not afraid to use the word curse to describe that condition, describe what happens when we turn away from our gods. Five times, in fact, that word is used, the word curse. We are living in a cursed world, struggling under the shadow of death. Nothing lasts in the end. It might be good for a while, but nothing lasts in the end. Nothing survives. In the end, there's nothing solid to hold on to. But the good news we're going to revisit tonight is that there is one thing to hold on to. There is one thing that's absolutely stable and secure, whatever happens. And we hold on to it by faith. In fact, we're starting a new series tonight, learning about faith from the, the life history of Abraham, who comes to be known, as Tim was mentioning, as the man of faith in the Bible. At least Abraham is the name that we tend to know him by. Uh, actually, early on in the story, you might have noticed as we were, we, we were reading it together, um, his name is Abraham. It gets changed halfway through the story. We'll come to that in a few weeks' time. Uh, but he's going to help us to discover what faith really is, biblical faith really is. So what is faith? Well, even tonight, right at the very start of the story, uh, we're going to learn a great deal about faith from the example of Abraham and his response to the Lord. Uh, We're going to see faith is not blind, it's not complicated, it's not even especially mysterious. It's about hearing the promises of God and believing them deeply. Indeed, I hope we're going to see that the purpose of this amazing chapter right at the beginning of the Bible is to bring us to respond to the promises of God deeply, trusting him for real, taking care not to trust in ourselves. We're going to look at this in three parts this evening, Um, looking first at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12, responding with trust to the promise of God, Uh, then 4 to 9, trust him for real, And then 10 to 20, taking care not to trust in ourselves. So then, beginning with Genesis chapter 12, what is biblical faith? Well, the first first of all is what we do when we respond with trust to the promises of God. This is verses 1 to 3. Respond with trust to the promises of God. Uh, God's solemn promise at this major turning point in the history of the world is to fill it with blessing. He's going to fill it with blessing. That's basically the promise. And and he's going to begin with this one man, Abraham. And beginning with this one man, Abraham, he calls us to respond to that promise. These are, I think, some of the most important words in the whole Bible. And therefore, some of the most important words full stop Uh, Let me read them to you again. So verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse all, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I've called this um, uh, one of the most momentous promises ever made, perhaps the most momentous promise ever made. But I, 
I want you to see first how this also begins in a, in a very small way, in a way that's quite personal and intimate. It does indeed seem that God likes to work like that, always keen to start things in a small way and let them grow into something great. It begins with one man and one woman. Uh, if you look up at a few verses to the family tree that marks the start of this section in the book of Genesis, uh, you'll see that Abraham is the son of Terah. He marries Sarai, uh, verse 29. But look at verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Sarai was childless. She was unable to conceive. Abraham and Sarah have no child. That's how living in a cursed world hit home for them. That was the, the struggle that they were going through. And uh, part of what the Lord is doing here is he makes these promises is to promise to deal with that. So it starts small, but then it quickly mushrooms into something much bigger. Look at how this kind of personal blessing will mushroom into something much bigger than that. A promise, not just a personal blessing, but a national blessing. You can see that in the first part of the promises. That's there in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation, says the Lord. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Otherwise, it seems that the Lord is promising much more than just a child. He promises to bless Abraham with a great nation that's descending from him, a nation in which far from living under the shadow of childlessness, which is where they've been living so far, his status is going to be like no other. His name will be great. But it doesn't end there. This is much more even than a promise of national blessing. It's a promise of international, global blessing. You might notice there at the end of verse 2, there's a shift in focus in the promise. There's a sh- that shifts even sharper in the original language, but it's pretty clear in the, here in the English as well. The Lord says, you will be a blessing. He might even at this point be giving a second command, be a blessing. It marks the start of the second part of the promise, where we move from a, from a narrow focus to something much wider. The great nation will pave the way, says the Lord's, For Abraham to be a worldwide blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse, but all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I mentioned earlier five times, God, that the word curse is used in Genesis uh, chapters uh, 1 to 11 for the state of the world. Well, you might have noticed as we were just looking at that, that five times, and I don't think that's an accident, five times, We get the word blessing. This is the moment when curse turns to blessing. When the hope that everything is going to be turned around enters the world for the very first time. Now I've been struggling uh, to think of some way to get across to you the the scale and importance of what's being promised here. Uh, It really can't be underestimated. I don't think any kind of illustration or analogy will really do it justice. Uh, here's something that's a little bit like it. Back last August, last August um, an extraordinary thing happened in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Uh, you might know that the Atacama Desert is the driest desert in the whole world. So dry that it's used as a way to gain insight into what it would be like to, to be on Mars. But last August, heavy rains, uh, unexpected heavy rains came to parts of the desert, transforming that barren wilderness 
into a sea of brightly colored wildflowers. It's apparently an extraordinary sight and drew in people from all over the world to see it. Uh, so that's a striking image in itself, but we'd have to scale it up many, many times uh, to give it any relation to the kind of promise that's being made here. For a start, we'd have to, to think about something global. Life spreading not just over some small part of a remote desert, but spreading to every corner of the earth. Every person, every family. Uh, and we'd have to think about a much deeper kind of transformation. Uh, taking not just a, you know, one or two plants it's popping out of, the, of, out of the dust, but whole people being drawn out from the shadow of death. People having life breathed into them again. And of course we'd have to imagine something much more permanent. Not just a, a temporary transformation till life is once more scorched to death by the sun. We'd be talking about a permanent, eternal removal of the curse of death. Uh, it is, I agree, almost too big, isn't it? Too big to get our, our heads around. And so it can feel, I guess, a little unreal and inaccessible. Uh, you know, this is a very ancient promise. This momentous uh, announcement was made well over 3,000 years ago in a, a very different place and culture to our own. We might, we might well wonder then, what can it possibly have to do with us? And yet, and yet the claim at the other end of the Bible in the New Testament is that this promise has come absolutely close and accessible to everyone in the world. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us, this is Galatians chapter 3, that in these verses, God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. That is, he announced in advance the great announcement, the gospel news of Jesus Christ, uh, the one who will break into history and make these promises a reality and do it by taking taking all, all that curse, the curse of death upon himself on the cross. He's the one, therefore, who has opened up the reality of this blessing for the whole world. And let me just spell out what should be obvious uh, to us. If that is really true, if this is really true and accessible and brought near to us in Jesus Christ, it really does overshadow anything else, anything else that might attract our attention at the beginning of this new year. Uh, Jesus said, this is Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, then in his joy went out and sold all that he had and bought that field. It's worth giving up everything in order to be a part of what's being promised and made accessible here. So how do we access this treasure, this blessing? Well, by faith. Uh, you might be saying to me, though, tell me again what faith is. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is what we're going to be exploring over this coming term through this series. So taught by Abraham, the man of faith. But the lesson begins right here. Uh, but we'll see that the first lesson, uh, we'll see the first lesson uh, to learn better if we read on. And watch Abraham's first response to these great promises. The second section this evening. Uh, respond to God's promises then 
by trusting him for real. This is verses four to nine, trusting him for real. I think you'll see this very clearly if we compare verse one of the chapter to verse four. So verse one was this, let me remind you. Uh, The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And then in verse four, we're told, uh, so Abraham left, as the Lord told him. It's very straightforward, isn't it? Do this, Abraham does it. What does he do? He does an extraordinary thing, actually. Um, Moving house is an upheaval at the best of times. Uh, But verse 4, we're told that Abraham is 75 years old at this point. And um, he's accumulated quite a lot of stuff. Even if you've um, only been living away from your your parents for a few years, perhaps, um, you'll know how quickly it, it happens. You accumulate stuff. And you don't know where it's come from or what it is most of the time, but soon it's filling every cupboard, every space and corner. But at 75, Abraham seems to have accumulated not just stuff, but large numbers of miscellaneous near relatives and a host of other people as well. And he's dragging them from where they were apparently quite happily settled to somewhere quite different. Where? Where are we going? Asks Sarai as they set out. We'll see, says Abraham. Are we nearly there yet? Asks the younger member of the party. We're there when we get there, says Abraham. It's an extraordinary thing to do, isn't it? He must have really believed what the Lord had said to him. And he must have seen how vital it, it is to respond you know, with this active trust in the promises of the living God. And you can see here that the Lord responds very positively to Abraham's act of faith. He confirms his promise and even gives a little bit more detail on how Abraham and his descendants will be blessed. It's verse 7. To your offspring I will give you this land. It's one of the um, uh, rules that we'll find very helpful, I think, in reading this story of Abraham in Genesis. Uh, that uh, whenever Abraham does something right and something that we should copy, something we should emulate, the Lord speaks and confirms his promise and effectively says, well done. And uh, says, uh, gives the promise uh, yet again. When the Lord is silent, it's another matter, as we'll see a little later. Okay, though, here's the first lesson, but here's the first lesson about faith. Faith is not a passive thing. Faith is lively. Uh, last year, we were celebrating 500 years since the, the start of the Reformation, the rediscovery of the Bible and biblical truth uh, back in the 16th century. And the Reformers are very keen to talk about God's blessing and salvation coming to us by faith alone, apart from anything good we might do. Now, modern Bible teachers have, have rightly continued to have that emphasis. Salvation comes to us by faith alone. And it's right to emphasize that because it, it's actually quite counterculture. It's counterintuitive to our minds. We naturally feel that we must somehow earn God's blessing, but it's not so. The scriptures teach over and over again God's blessing is a free, extravagant, undeserved gift. As we were thinking about last term, it's pure grace. 
But the reformers were also keen to talk about the liveliness of faith. Uh, Receiving God's blessing is indeed by faith alone, they said. But faith, true faith, is never alone. By faith alone, but faith is never alone. It always, without exception, shows itself somehow. And uh, we may have grown up in as Christians today in circles where perhaps this hasn't been as emphasized as as much as it should have been. But it's a very, very important and significant point, isn't it? And it makes sense when you stop to think about it. If Abraham really, truly believes what the Lord has promised him, then that changes everything for him, doesn't it? It changes his life. Uh, The direction of his life is suddenly very different. His future is different. It's changed And you can see how that's going to make him hugely more responsive to ideas, like moving his his extended family to a completely different and unknown country. And it should do the same for us. True faith should open up changes in our lives that would have been unthinkable before. Now, of course, the, the flip side of this is that if the good news of God's blessing has no impact on me, there's a problem. If, for example, my lifestyle is indistinguishable from the culture around me, or it's never really changed, there's a problem. If I find myself unable to take risks in the Christian life, or to do things that hurt or are costly for the sake of the gospel, there's a problem. But here's the important thing. The solution to that problem is not to take on some New Year's resolutions and simply to try a little harder in those areas. No, because the problem is with my faith. And the solution lies in going back to the promises, going back to these promises here in Genesis 12, going back to the promises as they're fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do that, and our faith and trust in the promises of God are restored and strengthened, then great things are possible, just as they were for Abraham here. But there's one last thing to say about faith from our passage tonight before we finish, uh, from this rather strange account of Abraham and Sarai's ill-advised holiday in Egypt. Uh, It's verses 10 through to 20. And I'd like to suggest that, among other things, it's a very useful reminder uh, to trust in God and his promises without trusting in ourselves. So this is the last section, verses 10 through to 20, without trusting in ourselves. Okay, so this is what happens. A famine brings Abraham and Sarai to leave for Egypt. Uh, They weren't told to do this, so this in itself might have been a failure of faith. Uh, But it's nothing compared to the failure of faith Abraham then shows in his very cowardly and sinful stupidity. He's afraid the Egyptians might kill him so they can take his beautiful wife. So what does he do? He distances himself from her. He pretends she's his sister. Uh, What's he doing here? Well, he's basically failing to believe and trust in God's promise of protection. We had that back in verse 3. This is what God promised. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. It's a promise of protection, whatever the circumstances. 
Abraham doesn't believe it. And so he pretends his wife is his sister. But Sarai is then taken by Pharaoh as a wife. And I think it's quite strongly implied here that, it, that Pharaoh actually commits adultery with her, bringing a plague upon his household. Uh, look at back at verse 2 again. Abraham is supposed to be a blessing to other people, a blessing to people he meets. As I said before, it might even be a command, be a blessing. But here, he's not really being a blessing, is he? If anything, he's being a curse. He's brought a plague upon Pharaoh. It's an outrageous story, and we simply cannot, cannot ignore the sheer scandal of what Abraham does. Imagine someone you respect doing this. Imagine, say, your father doing this. You know, saying, oh, she's not my wife. Do what you like. Now, unlike the previous episode, there's, there's no approval of Abraham's example here. The Lord is silent. And from that, we know very strongly that something has gone wrong. And when finally confronted by Pharaoh, Abraham is silent too. He's got nothing to say. He's very, very clearly in the wrong. And we're thinking at that point, you know, if he was afraid for his life before, he certainly should be now. But extraordinarily, somehow, by the skin of their teeth, Abraham and Sarah get away with it. And we have to conclude that must be a miracle. Miraculously, they escape and get back to Canaan. Now, I think the original readers of this story would have found plenty to identify with here. Um, Abraham's descendants, like Abraham, were, were forced into Egypt by a famine. Like Abraham, they were miraculously rescued. And God is effectively saying to them also, through this story, like Abraham, you don't deserve to be rescued, but like Abraham, I'm going to rescue you anyway. That is my commitment and faithfulness to my promises. So what do we take away from all of this? Well, first, it should be very obvious that, that Abraham's faith needs a little refining. It hasn't failed entirely, or he'd be really in trouble, but it is, this is certainly a, a serious blip, to say the least. And we'll see over the coming turn, it's not the only blip of faith that Abraham goes through. We'll find at times Abraham's faith quite erratic. But by the end of his life, he will have learned a deeper faith. That is part of the story. Uh, related to this, we're also learning a little bit more about what faith is. If I could put it this way, uh, our faith can never be in our faith. Our faith can never be in our faith. Our, in other words, our faith does not and cannot qualify as the one dependable thing in the universe we can cling on to. Now remember what faith is. It's depending upon God. It's believing and trusting his promises. It's believing in Jesus Christ our Lord and his fulfillment of the promises. It's not our faith that could ever be trustworthy. It's God. It's his promises. It's our Lord, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his death and resurrection. It's, it's, as the reformers used to put it, it's the object of our faith that is dependable. It's not our faith. 
that's dependable. All those things are the trustworthy things, which is exactly what we see here at the end of Genesis chapter 12. The Lord steadfastly holding on to what is promised Abraham, even as Abraham stumbles around in his weakness. And as we stumble around in our weakness, and in our weakness of faith, that can be a great encouragement to us too. So faith is responding with trust to the promises of God. Faith is trusting him for real, it's lively. But faith is not faith in faith, it's faith in God. So yes, there are times in life that feel like being tumbled over in the surf. Times when we feel utterly helpless, like there's nothing dependable in our lives to hang on to. Uh, But let me say, actually, those are not times to despise. Actually, those moments are are moments of great clarity in our lives. Because the truth is, in the end, there is nothing dependable to hang on to in this wonderful yet crumbling world, uh, struggling on under the shadow of death. There is nothing dependable to hang on to, apart from the God who made it. And as we've seen tonight, apart from his great promises of blessing, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made those promises a reality for the whole world. These are the truths Abraham had to learn by faith. These are the truths the nation of Israel had to learn over and over again. As they stumbled and fell, and as all they held dear was stripped away time and time again, forced to remember There are still the promises. There's always something to hang on to in them. We still have the promises. And the more we learn these things, the better we'll be able to embrace the chaos of life. More than that, the more we'll be able to embrace change and risk to the glory of God, just as was Abraham in his better moments. Well, let's pray for that together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for showing something of of what faith uh, really is uh, through this wonderful chapter by showing us chiefly just how wonderful and stable and steadfast you are and as are your promises in their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that we pray that as we cling to you by faith in him, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. For you are with us Your rod and staff, they comfort us. And you've prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And you've anointed our heads with oil. And we can say, our cup overflows. Surely we pray now, goodness and love and blessing will follow us all the days of our lives. And we can be sure to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.